Well, thank you so much, everyone, for turning up on this cold evening. Uh, are you having a good festival of ideas? Yes. yes. Are you making new friends now that you've bunched up close to each other? Well, I hope you are having a good time, because this will be very much um, a knockabout panto hour or so. There'll be lots of audience response, as you would expect from a talk like this. Um, at various points in the evening, I suppose, you'll be calling out, he's behind you, and at that point, I will turn around. Um, but because it's about ancient Greek philosophy, um, no one can actually be behind me, because I'll be about to deny the possibility of movement through time and space, or such thing. No, I'm joking, actually. There won't be much audience response in this at all, at least till the end. So I'm going to talk for 45, 50 minutes or so, and then give you plenty of opportunity to ask your own questions. So I want to begin in the 2nd century CE, when the Roman Empire is at the height of its power and stability, some 6.5 million kilometers, square kilometres across. Now, the Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire is roughly... Greece um, in the centre there to the, uh, to the right as you look at it. And the Greek-speaking uh, part uh, extends roughly from the Greek peninsula uh, through into modern Turkey, south through Syria, and then into North Africa. Now, across this huge area, the free ma males of the elite and some of the females too, and some of the sub-elite, are taught rhetoric, grammar, and literature from youth, and many are taught philosophy from later on. Now, the point I want to make about this educational programme is that it is entirely secular in our terms. Uh, there are gods everywhere, of course, in Greek and, and Latin literature and thought, but the teachers of this educational system are not priests and they're not teaching their students to evaluate the truth of their texts. They're teaching them to evaluate language, argumentation, uh, the, the shape of the texts. Now, let's zoom in a little bit closer. In the Roman province of Syria, there is a town called Samoseta. Uh, now, Syria is, as you know, you can see it over there on the map. Uh, in antiquity, that extended further north into uh, what is modern-day Turkey. And that's the bit we're going to be talking about, just really above the D of Cappadocia. Now, so we're going to zoom in to a small town called Samoseta. It's, near, it's in the Kurdish part of modern Turkey, near the modern city of Adiyaman. Uh, and inevitably now there is, of course, a very large refugee camp, mercifully well-run refugee camp nearby. But in antiquity, in about 120 CE, or AD if you prefer, there was born a young man called Lucian. Now, the name... Uh, Lucianos in Greek, Lucianus in Latin, is derived from the Latin forename Lucius. And this probably indicates that his family uh, had Roman citizenship, which indicates that he was a relatively well-to-do individual. Now, in time, Lucian would become one of the foremost and most cosmopolitan intellectuals of his age. Although he joked about his origins way out in the East and captured some of the snide banter that he encountered... Uh, when people poked fun at his barbarian accent and his funny clothes. Despite this, his fame spread throughout the Roman Empire, partly as a result of his uh, status as an orator with a masterful command of the Greek language. He probably grew up speaking Aramaic or something, but learned Greek in later life. But more, off, more, more commonly, he was famous as a satirist of human behaviour. And that's what I want to talk about him. Uh, in, in, that's the context in which I want to talk about him today. 
Now, among the aspects of human behavior he satirized was religion. Lucian was, in fact, the earliest pagan Greek writer to mention Christianity. He pokes fun at the followers of what he calls the sophist on the cross. Uh, And this is in the course of a crackpot religious tourist who tries out lots of different creeds before eventually settling on a form of the the ancient philosophy that we call cynicism now and throwing himself on a bonfire at the Olympic Games. Lucian has great fun with this idea that this uh, man who was uh, presenting himself as uh, the epitome of all virtue, of human virtue, actually ended up being trapped in the situation where he had to do something so impossibly virtuous um, as throw himself onto a a fire. So self-sacrificing as this, and he didn't really want to do it, he was absolutely terrified of it, but he ended up forced into this situation. So that's one of Lucian's uh, religious satires. Another attacks a false prophet called Alexander, a follower of Glycon, a snake god with long hair. Now you may have heard of Glycon, uh, if, in fact, you know the graphic, graphic novelist Alan Moore. Uh, Alan Moore is one of the uh, one of probably only one or two people internationally who are still followers of Glycon. And Alan Moore f- uh, presented Thought for the Day on 31st of December 2011 with a witty paraphrase of Lucian's take on things. Now, Alan Moore's point was that he would rather worship a god who was self-evidently a fake Now, Glycon in Lucian's satire is an entirely constructed puppet god. He's um, an enormous thing made out of papier-mâché and and wooden sticks and wires used to open and shut his mouth. And he pronounces oracles, which are then discovered and deciphered by Alexander the false prophet himself. Now, in the course of his takedown of the false prophet Alexander, Lucian again mentions the Christians, and again in rather negative terms. He says that the Christians are the kind of wretches that you'd want to drive out of your city with stones. Now, Lucian only ever talks about Christians very briefly and very in passing. He's not really interested in Christians. Christianity barely registered, as I say, on the radar of most Greek intellectuals at this time. The numbers were absolutely minuscule. We're probably talking about well under 1% of the Roman population was Christian in the early 2nd century. So as I say, Lucian is going for the big hits. He's going for the famous figures of his day, and Christians aren't big. But these two brief allusions were enough to condemn him in the eyes of later Christians. In the Byzantine world, Lucian was therefore known as the atheist, and an alternative hellfire was prophesied for him in the company of Satan. Then later, the Catholic Church put him on the notorious index of prohibited books. Interestingly, though, in northern Europe, Lucian was co-opted by the leading lights of the Protestant, of Protestant humanism. Uh, Erasmus was a big fan. Of course, he wasn't a Protestant, but he was uh, you know, pushing in that direction, certainly a, a humanist. And, the, and these Protestants tended to co-opt Lucian as an ally against what they saw as the flummery and the obsession with ritual of the Catholic Church. So he's an interesting figure in the round, Lucian. He's somebody who, if one wanted to tell a full story of the reception of Greco-Roman atheism in modern Christian, Western Christian culture, there's a very interesting story to be told about Lucian. But as I say, Lucian isn't really interested in Christianity, and that's not why I'm talking about him today. Uh, Christianity, as I say, was a, a tiny cult at the time, much smaller than the cult of Glycone. Um, it's not quite as if the terms are reversed now. That uh, I mean, if you think about Alan Moore being the only follower of Glycon now and Christianity being a massive world religion, it's not quite as if the two have swapped around entirely. But certainly um, in antiquity, Christianity was tiny, at least in, the, in this stage of, in the 
early second century, and the cult of Glycon was something much bigger. But what I want to, the reason I'm talking to you about Lucian is because Lucian's real target was conventional mainstream Greco-Roman religion of the kind that is very familiar to us today. The, the pantheon of the 12 gods, the Olympic worship based around the ritual of blood sacrifice. Now, Lucian is an extraordinary figure. He's a, such a cherished source for thinking about how people resisted conventional ideas about the gods in antiquity. He wrote an essay attacking the practice of blood sacrifice, which was the centerpiece of all ancient religions, including, of course, Christianity itself. Christianity turned the, the metaphor, turned uh, blood sacrifice into a, a kind of metaphor or parable, if you like, because um, God the Father sacrificed his son um, for humanity, uh, and therefore his son became the Lamb of God, a sacrificial animal. Uh, but Lucian's, uh, Lucian was focusing on sacrifice in a more uh, literal sense. Why on earth, he was arguing, would the, the, the gods want, to, want us to burn up the inedible parts of dead animals? This is one pe- peculiar fe- feature about Greco-Roman sacrifice, is that they cut away the meaty parts, the nice edible parts, kept them, the humans kept them for themselves and ate them in a big festival. And then they burnt the inedible parts for the gods. So Lucian says, why on earth would the gods want you to burn inedible parts of an animal? um, And uh, how on earth could they consume it anyway in the form of smoke? And why, he goes on, would beings who are by nature blessed and immortal, why would they care about what we transient mortals get up to? Uh, And then again, why would... Gods reward you for sacrificing rather than doing good things. Are the gods' favours for sale then? So you can see how this very trenchant rationalist approach to uh, sacrifice and the logic of sacrifice, logic of ancient sacrifice, becomes for Lucian a very powerful way into the heart of ancient religion. Another essay attacks the idea of funerals. Why is it, he says, we weep and wail over the dead? What difference does it make to them? What difference does it make to us that we lament the passing of people? They're dead, they're gone. We know they're not going to come back. We know that they can't hear us. So again, if you like, what Lucian's doing is just shining a very sharp, rationalist, philosophically informed light onto religious rituals. And all of this comes out of, as I mentioned earlier, this secular educational background, the fact that the education which he and many others like him were given, was not presided over by priests. It wasn't a scribal, priestly education. It wasn't, they weren't being taught how to worship. They were being taught how to analyse, how to understand things, how to take a scalpel to arguments. Now, one remarkable piece by Lucian is called Zeus the Tragedian. And it's remarkable. It's cast in the form of a dramatic dialogue. It opens on Mount Olympus, where Zeus is weeping and wailing, Hence the name Zeus the Tragedian, because tragedy is full of weeping and wailing. Now, it soon soon turns out that the reason why Zeus is weeping and wailing in this manner is because he has overheard a a public debate in the world of the living, uh, the world of mortals downstairs. So he's gone down and he's listened to this debate, and it turns out to be a debate between a Stoic philosopher and an Epicurean philosopher. Now, to gauge why this is so important, we need to to think a little bit more about the role of philosophy in Greek culture at this time. Philosophy is two 
the Greco-Roman world, what, in effect, many parts of the religious, what we think of as religious education is to people nowadays. It gives you a way into understanding your position in the world. It gives you systems of morality. It gives you uh, understandings of the cosmos as a whole. And Stoicism and Epicureanism are by far the two biggest competitor philosophies in this period. Stoicism teaches broadly that there is a guiding force, a providential force in the cosmos, and that we are steered by this providential force towards a better end. So our function is to acclimatise ourselves. We live our lives best when we acclimatise ourselves to this, uh, this positive direction in which we are being steered by the cosmic force. Epicureanism is very different. Epicureanism tells you that there is no cosmic force in the world, that uh, if there are gods, people differ on this matter whether there actually are gods at all, but if they are, they're impossibly remote. They have nothing to do with our life. And they too, like everything else in the universe, are made of atoms, um, matter. Matter and void are the constituent parts of reality. So it's a radically materialist way of viewing things. And in the Epicurean worldview, there is no, absolutely no steering, no providential steering. All you've got is the randomness of atoms colliding with each other. So there is no possibility of providence. There's no possibility that things are going towards the best possible end. All you can do is take responsibility for your own life and make the best of your own life in the one world that you have. And you do this through friendship. Um, Friendship which is mostly focused on small, tight networks of people. You look after people who are in your circle. But also you have to understand humanity as a whole as a form of friendship. The ethics of relationship relating to other people uh, are all about um, the only way, the only way, the only reason for you to look after other people is because friendship is a good thing to cultivate in itself and it makes the world better and happier. Okay. Now Epicureanism is absolutely huge. Here is a um, a recovered papyrus from Herculaneum. This was buried in the pyroclastic flow after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE in the Villa of the Papyri. Now, this is uh, the Getty Villa in Malibu, um, so not the Villa of the Papyri. Um, so we're talking, we're talking about the Bay of Naples, OK? Um, that's where this was found, in the Bay of Naples, near Pompeii, of course, famously. Now, this uh, is the Getty Villa in Malibu, but it's the best reconstruction that we know of of the Villa of the Papyri in Herculaneum, and it was deliberately modelled. It was built in the 1950s on, at the time, with the best guess of what the, uh, of what the villa of the papyri looked like. Now, the reason I mention this is because this archive of about 1,400 texts is the biggest archive of ancient texts that we have from classical antiquity, and they're beginning to be read now through all sorts of means. They've been read since the 18th century, since they were first dug up, but usually in a very destructive way. People would saw them in half and then open them up, and, of course, an awful lot would crumble away. And anyway, they were quite charred and illegible. So a lot of damage has been done to a lot of the papyri. Not all of them have been brought out yet. But now they can be read often through MRI scanning. That means that you don't even have to unroll them at all, and you can actually see where the ink is in the various different layers. So extraordinary new uh, technologies that are giving us access to this very rich archive. Now, the reason I mention this is because the largest archive that we have from from classical antiquity is predominantly an Epicurean uh, archive. It's an archive of Epicurean philosophy, probably 
in the possession of the famous Roman uh, Piso. So that's one index of just how big Epicureanism was in this era. There were huge libraries compiled by famous Romans like Piso um, at, at great expense. So Epicureanism is not just a niche philosophy. It really does go to the heart of power, if you like, in the Roman Empire. Uh, Julius Caesar was uh, a pronounced Epicurean as well. Another index of this is uh, the largest inscription that we have from classical antiquity, from Enoander in Turkey. You can perhaps just about make it out there on the lower of the two maps. Um, there's a, a map of Turkey in the context of Greece over there, so you can see that um, Enoander is um, just, if you can see Rhodes, the island of Rhodes, there's Crete at the bottom, Rhodes is sort of um, at uh, two o'clock from Crete, um, and then at two o'clock from Rhodes or so is Enoander. So the largest inscription that we that survives from classical antiquity, not Augustus's Ray's Gestae, his record of his achievement, it is this extraordinary display of Epicurean philosophy that was put up in public expense at great cost to one man called Diogenes in Enoander. Um, and uh, it is an extraordinary source of Epicurean philosophy, but as a monument, it is an extraordinary thing again. And it's another testament to just how enormous the reach and spread of Epicureanism was in this part. So, Epicureanism and Stoicism, the two major philosophical systems. Let's get back to Lucian and let's think about how he stages this dialogue between the Epicurean and the Stoic. Remember that um, we have Zeus opening the dialogue, uh, this comic dialogue, lamenting that this, the, that this debate is going on. Now, Zeus's fear is that the Epicurean will argue the gods out of existence. Now, this is, of course, a surreal um, situation because an argument, however powerful, can't cause things to cease to exist. And this surrealism is actually very typical of Lucian, who's probably antiquity's most Pythonesque writer. But it's not entirely mad, because ritual lay at the heart of Greeks' understanding of the nature of the gods. And what happens with ritual is that there's a kind of contract between human performers of ritual and the gods themselves. So ritual calls gods into being, if you like. So when you undertake this sacrificial act, when you kill your lamb or your your uh, ox or whatever, um, that is a sort of invocation of the god into existence. So if the Epicurean can persuade his fellow citizens that there is no point in sacrificing to the gods, then in a way, uh, it is right that the gods will cease to exist because without religion, you can't have gods because without religion, you don't have that contract between the mortal and the human that calls gods into being. So, the debate has already begun, and Zeus brings down, uh, Zeus has uh, brought down the night before the curtain early by making night fall. Only Zeus can do this, of course, if he's fe fearful of an argument being lost, you just make night fall, and you've got no electricity, no public candles or anything like that, so the debate simply has to stop. Uh, Zeus tells us that apparently the Stoics started out in confident mood, um, telling you about uh, how uh, the, the universe was providentially steered and so forth, but then started umming and ahhing and faltering and so forth. At the dramatic moment at which the dialogue opens, the 
uh, the a second day is just about to begin, the second day of the debate, and the crowds are already gathering to hear round two. Now, I asked you at the start of this talk to imagine yourself um, looking at the Roman Empire, panning over the Roman Empire, if you like, and then zooming down to Lucian's hometown of Samoseta. Actually, Zeus does a very similar thing at the start of this dialogue. He says to the gods who are up there on Olympus, let's throw open the gates of Olympus and look down on the world below. And that's what they do. They look down and with their um, bionic eyes, they zoom in down on this unnamed city uh, and uh, and the scene now shifts to the site of this debate where these two philosophers are parading their arguments. Now, once again, the Stoic starts in confident mood, but the Epicurean, whose name is Damis, slowly begins to turn the screw and reduces his argument to a yabbering wreck. And the arguments that he gives are as follows. Now, I'm now going to give you a list because I'm an academic and we like lists in academia. You know the, the gag, do you, about the Oxford Don who's overhe- overheard um, saying, and 13thly. Well, this list will be a bit like that. It won't be 13 items long. But I have um, itemised them um, just because it's very helpful, actually, to have uh, a sense of where the arguments begin and end and a sense of what the uh, accumulated weight of argumentation looks like. And the thing that I really want to focus on here is just how modern feeling these arguments are. You can, I was reading earlier, actually, today, uh, the, the new, uh, a book by Michel Onfray, uh, the French philosopher called, I forget what it's called, but it's, it's, it's an argument, one of these endless series of arguments for non-existence of gods. And it's remarkable how similar, how recurrent these arguments are. So the first claim that Damis makes is that there is no argument or proof that will allow you to demonstrate the existence of gods. Gods are a hypothesis, not a provable fact in our world. The second point that he makes is uh, there is no evidence for providence. There's no evidence whatsoever that gods are involved in the planning of human events for the best. Uh, there's every uh, evidence that, by, to the contrary, that human events, events that, as they befall humans, seem to be entirely random. Thirdly, the gods don't punish those who speak ill of them. So you can stand up in public space and say anything you like about Zeus and he won't zap you with a thunderbolt, uh, despite all those myths. Uh, People have tried it and it really uh, doesn't work. Fourthly, realistically, how would the gods find the time to dispense justice all over the cosmos? It's a pretty big place. How can they make sure that they can see and uh, hear all examples of wrongdoing and punish them? Fifthly, now this is an argument against uh, design, if you like. The Stoic has argued that the regular movement of the heavenly bodies in the sky is an evidence for the providential planning of the universe. There must be some sort of designing intelligence behind these movements. But, the Epicurean argues it's quite possible that something very different happened. He's noticed a tendency in nature for things to regularise over time. You can get, um, uh, if you throw things, for example, this isn't his uh, example, but, I mean, if you throw things uh, into a stream, you create a lot of chaos, but are, over time, they start floating in, a, in the direction of the current. Things regularise in nature. That's the principle that he's trying to get on there. So the fact that the heavenly bodies move in regular order now doesn't prove that they always did in time in the past. They may have started out uh, in a chaotic way and then 
achieved their natural, their regular shape later on. And in fact, actually, that's a very standard Greek explanation for the shape of the universe. Everything started in chaos, and the order came later. Sixthly, if you are a true believer in traditional religion, you believe in traditional stories about the gods, but these traditional stories usually depict the gods as deeply immoral in one way or another. So, for example, there are stories about gods committing adultery, gods tricking each other, and so forth. Seventhly, the Stoic has argued that religion is universal, that the truth of religion is demonstrated by the fact that every single people cross-culturally has a form of religion. What the Epicurean does in countering this argument is to say that actually this doesn't show anything whatsoever, because if you look at all these different conceptions of God cross-culturally, they're all very, very different from each other. And all that shows is that there's no coherence, there's no consistency to ideas about divinity. Eighthly, <laughs> um, oracles are often presented as evidence that the gods have foreknowledge, but they are untrustworthy and ambiguous. And this picks up a, a very deeply seated trope in Greek religion, the idea that uh, the oracles that are produced by the Delphic, um, by Delphi, for example, uh, are not actually in any way guides to future behaviour. They, they, so, they can be uh, re reinterpreted retrospectively. There's the famous one that Lucian loves, actually, of Croesus, uh, king of Lydia, when he's about to attack the Persian Empire. He goes to Delphi and says, should I attack the Persian Empire? And the Delphic Oracle responds, if you attack the Persian Empire, you will des destroy a great empire. So, of course, you know, <laughs> uh, Croesus takes it the wrong way, attacks, and he, his empire is cut to shreds. So, ninth example. Uh, the Epicurean says most religious rituals are harmless, but some are not. Uh, he uses the example of the cult of Artemis at Tauris on the Crimea, where human beings were supposedly flogged. Okay, so re religious rituals can actually be pretty barbaric and brutal, he says. And finally, the, the last example, the tenth example, the Stoic has used the analogy comparing the universe to, to a, a ship which is being captained by um, a pilot. If it didn't have this divine pilot, the Stoic has said, it wouldn't continue to straight, sail straight. Now, Damis says, firstly, that's just a metaphor. You know, metaphors prove absolutely nothing. But secondly... If you look at the way that our ship, uh, the state of our ship at the moment, it's in a pretty messy state. It's not a well-run ship at all. It may be painted quite nicely on the outside, he says, but it's a complete mess on the inside. All the decent sailors are set to work doing menial tasks, while the ones in charge are terrible layabouts. And this is Lucian having a dig at the political structure of his time. But you can see how it works, you know, that, that anyone who says that um, the, that human societies run for the best and that there is a providential ordering behind this that's guiding our ship in the right direction, it's very easy to subvert that kind of argument by saying, no, it's not. Life is a mess. We have the potentiality of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. There's no evidence whatsoever there for providential uh, planning. Now, as the skit comes to, the, to an end, the gods have to admit that Damis uh, has the better arguments. Now, what strikes me, as I say, about Lucian is just how modern all of this feels, despite the separation of nearly two millennia. It feels modern because of the structure of the humour, partly. This is the kind of thing that you could imagine someone like Stuart Lee coming up with. But it also feels modern, I think, because we're grappling with many of these kinds of questions 
today. How do you prove the existence of gods? Is there any validity to the argument that you need uh, a concept of God to engender human morality? If there is a powerful, just God in the world, how do we explain the existence of unchecked injustice? What do we do with those situations where religious behaviour seems not beneficial to humanity, but seems actively, evidently destructive to humanity? Does the widespread but diverse nature of religious belief across the planet show that all human beings have an intuitive, natural grasp of the divine, um, or does it show that we have a million different ways, a million different incoherent ways, incompatible ways of explaining the inexplicable? What kind of order is there in the world? And does it need to be accounted for in human terms or divine terms, I should say? So what we have here is, if you like, a very recognisable map of atheist argumentation, as I say, 2,000 years ago. And that strikes me as very fascinating. Now, I'd be the last person to deny that historical and cultural difference really does change things. My view is that atheism played a very important but very different role in the early Roman Empire and in classical antiquity in general. It was almost certainly much smaller scale than atheism is in the modern world. And this is because the institutional and social frameworks that supported it were much thinner. Uh, basically, ancient society was built around the idea of the city-state Rome was a particularly big city-state that then radiated outwards. Um, but most of the Greco-Roman world was built around urbanised environments. And these city-states held themselves together through religious ritual, through uh, regular performances of religious ritual. So all of the institutional support for cohesion within societies was generated through, um, through religion. There were no none of the social factors that have created widespread atheism in the modern world. There was no narrative of technological progress. Very few people in the Greco-Roman world thought of themselves in, as belonging to a society that was getting technologically better all of the time. Uh, we certainly didn't see mass industrialization. We didn't see anything like the science versus faith arguments that you get in post-Enlightenment cultures. What do look very similar, though, as I say, are the arguments. And this leads me to propose a very simple uh, conclusion. On the one hand, religion is a feature of human society. It always has been and probably always will be massively variable across time and space. Similarly, atheism, insofar as it has always existed, and I suspect it always has existed in some form or other across time and space, Atheism is historically variable. Okay? It is a fact of history, not a fact, it's, or at least its manifestation is a fact of history rather than of human nature. It, it had, the forms in which it comes out are conditional on the social apparatuses that surround it. On the other hand, um, the arguments against the existence of God or gods do seem to be fairly constant. It doesn't take a European Enlightenment... It doesn't take industrialization. It doesn't take secular modernity to come up with, for example, a position of skepticism about the efficacy of gods in our world. Such uh, arguments were attested by 20th century uh, anthropologists in Central Africa, for example. Uh, Evans Pritchard amongst the Azandi tribe. Uh, he, what does he do? He goes and finds a tribe with a, uh, a, 
a witch doctor performing some ceremony in front of people, uh, and he talks to somebody afterwards and says, uh, uh, "Did you believe that?" And he said, "No, I thought it was a load of rubbish. You know, the guy's obviously a fraud." So Evans Pritchard's immediate thought is that this is a cocky young male, you know, and we know what cocky young males are like. They tend to challenge things. And then uh, Evans Pritchard says, but to my surprise, the more people I questioned, the more I realised that absolutely nobody believed in, at any deep level, what was going on here. They all recognised that it was a form of performance. So as I say, I think religious scepticism is something that is probably a cultural uh, universal. And the arguments against religious uh, um, against religion and the efficacy of religious ritual probably are uh, have a certain constancy to them and they usually go something like um, you are positing the influence of gods in our world but i can't see the influence of gods in our world prove it to me okay and i as i say i suspect that is a universal and i suspect that that's not just the sort of thing that hyper sophisticated intellectuals come up with it's also the thing that for example children come up with it's a sort of naive uh, question by the young to their elders you know, how come uh, what is this thing that you call the transubstantiation for example or whatever you know it's that sort of innocent question that says i don't understand it it doesn't make sense to me uh, so it is a form of universal as i say now my book battling the gods um there you go Uh, attempts to give an account of atheism in the Greco-Roman world in precisely these terms. It tries to balance that sense of continuity at the level of argumentation with an awareness of just how different a pre-industrial, pre-monotheist world was. It is, on the one hand, um, a window into a world so unlike, almost unimaginably different to our own. It tells the story of a millennium of history covering the birth of Athenian democracy, the rise of the Hellenistic kingdoms in the aftermath of the conquest of Alexander the Great, the coming of Rome, the emergence of Christianity, and so forth. It tells the history of a pre-industrial polytheist, that's to say, uh, with many gods, world. On the other hand, despite all this talk of difference, I do think it's fair to talk of atheism as broadly the same concept in that world as in ours. After all, atheism is an ancient Greek word. It simply means lacking in a god. Atheos in Greek uh, is the Greek for atheist. I'd like to spend a bit of time now just talking about what exactly is at stake in these questions of sameness and difference, about whether... It, how it matters, why it matters so much to think of uh, that word atheism as a word that might be shared between modernity and antiquity. Now, you might be thinking that this is just a point of terminological precision, uh, and it's just conventional academic footling around with, the, um, with um, nerdy questions of terminology. But it's not, actually. It goes to the heart of uh, the politics, if you like, of a book like this. And it's actually here where I've had most pushback from reviewers. Reviewers have actually been very nice to this book, I should say, uh, in general. Um, I'm not complaining at all. But there, is, there has been a little bit of a pushback on this use of the term atheism. And people have said, well, why are you using the word atheism? It's not really atheism in our sense. Uh, now, for me, it is a form of atheism. And I'd like to explain a little bit why it's important to talk in these terms. Now, to fill in some context... Uh, about the, the politics of classical scholarship in general. Okay? Uh, in Victorian times, many histories of the classical world were written in terms of straightforward linear progress. So back, way back when, there was the primitive world. 
Then the Greeks and the Romans started the civilizing process, dragging humanity out of that primeval swamp, giving them the light of reason and so forth. Then came Christianity, and that made Greco-Roman, that sort of sorted out the religious aspect of Greco-Roman paganism. And then finally, the British Empire finished off the civilizing process and took it all over the world. Okay. So that's how kind of basically classical scholarship worked in the 19th century. Of course, I'm simplifying, um, but you get the idea. Now, for obvious reasons, in the 20th century, that became a completely untenable model for classical scholarship. After the collapse of empires, after two world wars, Europe's exclusive claims to being civilised looked pretty shaky. And in addition, there was a much wider understanding of different forms of civilization across the planet. So the Greeks and the Romans started looking far less exceptional and more, more like other forms of pre-industrial cultures. So the dominant way of understanding the Greeks and the Romans came to be anthropological or ethnographic, if you like. Um, people started thinking of the Greeks and the Romans in terms of their difference from us. So when someone pops up in 2016 and seems to argue that the Greeks invented atheism, it looks to some people's eyes as if it's a return to the bad old days of European self-congratulation. But let me say, although some reviewers have thought that that's what I was up to with the book, um, that's categorically not what I'm up to. I don't say that the Greeks invented atheism, as I've tried to stress many times this evening. My, my view is that forms of atheism are probably available across all cultures. My view is that um, what's special about the Greeks in particular is really the quantity and the diversity of evidence that we have. Um, it's just the, the, the richness of the material that we can work with with classical Greece that makes it such an exceptional culture. Um, China and India are also good places to look for ancient religious scepticism. Um, uh, I'm not a specialist in Chinese or Indian uh, cultures. Um, but uh, again, I think it's probably the diversity of material that, that we have from, the, uh, from ancient Greece and Rome that makes the difference. I mean, things like that... Uh, that our old friend the Herculaneum papyrus, and that the uh, Enoander inscription. Um, these really are exceptional kinds of artefacts. And coupled with the, if you like, sort of the maturity of scholarly apparatus, all this means that collectively, put together, we, we can date things with relative confidence to eras. We've got huge amounts of material. We've got millennia of commentary on this material. And we've got, as I say, a sort of a, a level of understanding of this material that really makes it non pare. So the Greeks are the best to work with because of the nature of the evidence, not because the Greeks are special in having atheism. Nor am I claiming a straight line of development from ancient Greece to modern Europe. I'm not saying that the Greeks are our ancestors in any easy way. Um, as I've mentioned, many of us now see ancient Greece uh, in anthropological terms and not as substantially different from other ancient peoples, uh, the Egyptians, the um, Babylonians, uh, the Palestinians, and so forth. The, um, the, uh, um, uh, yeah. um, in, in fact, um, the early pre-Socratic philosophers were almost certainly very influenced by Babylonian ideas about the cosmos. And what's more, Greek culture had more influence initially on Islamic culture than it did on Christian Europe. So really, my point is, absolutely, it's not the case that there is a single genetic line connecting the Greeks to modern Europe. And certainly, 
Um, it's not the case that the book provides uh, an opportunity for modern Europeans to congratulate themselves on their ancestry going back, their rationalist ancestry going back two and a half thousand millennia. Now, there's another dimension to this. One of the great no-nos in the history of religion is what's called Christianizing non-Christian religions. And what that means is applying terminology which is developed for the analysis of Christian culture to non-Christian cultures. That's a form of ethnocentric projection, which, as I say, is very much people are very hostile to. In fact, actually, many people would now say that even the word religion carries uh, Christian connotations that, um, of the separation of church and state and so forth that uh, are inappropriate to non-Christian peoples. So you can see what a minefield religious history is. Religious history really does get you into these really tricky questions of what is the correct vocabulary to use to analyse your source matter. And the reason I mention this is that one of the particular flashpoints for this way of thinking for this worrying about the correct language to use to describe non-Christian cultures, is the idea of belief. Christians have, this is, this is true, okay, Christians have co-opted the idea of belief as a kind of, um, as a, almost a kind of slogan, uh, and this, goes, this appears from the earliest Christian texts onwards. Early Christians described themselves as the believers, hoi pistuantes in Greek. Pistis, the Greek word pistis, fides in Latin, becomes so closely tied to the idea of Christianity um, that it almost becomes, as I say, a kind of slogan, an identifying token for the Christian faith community. Uh, and this has only intensified since the Reformation in Northern Europe in particular and uh, America, where Protestants have sought to redefine or refine this idea of belief as a kind of personal, internal communion with the divine, in contrast to more ritualized communitarian forms of worship. So the, the idea of belief has become a very embattled concept. And for most scholars of pre-industrial religions, you would never say uh, you never talk about the belief, the faith, or the creed of the people that you're talking about. So you can see why experts in the history of religion get annoyed why people are talking loosely about faiths or beliefs and so forth. It looks like a clumsy assumption that all religions in all human uh, eras have operated in broadly the same way as uh, Christianity does in Northern Europe and America. Now, this is why some people are uncomfortable with the idea of disbelief, Okay. Um, after all, they say, isn't disbelief simply the inverse of Christian and particularly Protestant belief? Well, no, I would say that's not true at all. Uh, disbelief isn't the rejection of belief in that strong Christian sense. Um, it just means believing something doesn't exist. And this is actually a perfectly natural uh, human category. We can all believe that things don't exist. A child comes in and says, I saw a fairy at the bottom of the garden. No, you didn't. That didn't be I don't believe you. That doesn't exist. Somebody in a court of law says, um, well, I, I, you know, I gave the money to X or whatever. And then the judge says, no, you didn't. Um, I don't believe you. I don't, I, I don't believe. So this idea of not believing that something is the case is, as I say, an essential part of human culture as a whole. Um, and disbelieving in the gods, I think, is an extension of this perfectly natural form of disbelief. There is uh, plenty of evidence for disbelief in the gods being something cross-cultural. And we've already seen the example from Lucian, a very strong example of a pre-Protestant, pre, largely pre-Christian. Lucian, isn't, isn't, he's certainly not informed by Christianity uh, at this point. And certainly pre-industrial, pre-enlightenment, pre, -industrial, pre, -enlightenment, pre 
secular and so forth uh, culture. So we can have the idea of disbelief in the gods in pre-Christian cultures. Uh, in fact, actually, to me, there's something quite disturbingly ethnocentric, if you like, in the argument um, that it is ethnocentric to seek disbelief in the um, cultures outside of the modern West. It's, quite, of course, absolutely imperative that we don't just plonk our assumptions onto other cultures. You know, it's the stereotypical you know, kind of arrogant belief that all cultures operate like your own. We mustn't do that at all. But the idea that you decide from the start that disbelief can't exist in cultures outside of modern Christian-influenced Western cultures, that seems to me to be equally ethnocentric. Uh, It's a way of saying that the West is so special, so unique, that it has ways of thinking that other peoples don't. And it's also a way of saying... Uh, that we should define other cultures solely in terms of what they they lack. That's to say that the other cultures we sh- should be uh, t- uh, considered as inversion inverted forms of modern Western cultures. Now, as I've said, the Greeks speak repeatedly of atheoi, of atheists, and of those who don't believe in the gods. They also mention those who remove the gods from existence. That's the standard Epicurean term for uh, atheists. These are their standard ways of describing philosophical positions that we would call, with a certain amount of nuance and flexibility now, uh, atheists. It seems to me that anyone who starts from the position that disbelief cannot have existed away from Christian modernity needs to start from the evidence. And they need to look at, they need to read my book, basically, and explain to me why it was that ancient Greeks spoke so much about people like Damis, who didn't believe in God's. Now, a more sophisticated version of this objection is to say that, well, okay, so the Greeks had a concept of atheism and they had an idea of not believing in the gods, but they didn't mean the same thing as we do when they said it. Many of the the people uh, that are in the book, uh, they would say, are not atheists in our terms. So let's take, for example, the Epicureans. And I mentioned earlier, the Epicureans are a bit weird about gods. Uh, Epicurus himself lived in the late 4th century and he inveighed very strongly against those who removed the gods from existence. Um, he had, a, as I say, a, an entirely materialist view of the world. He thought there is no providence, there are only atoms and void, they're the only constituent parts of reality, but there are gods. The gods exist remote from us, they have, you, there's no point in praying to them except to generate friendship in our world. They can't intervene in our world, except that occasionally you get sort of um, little atoms entering our brains while we're asleep that give us sort of visions of gods. Um, But the gods aren't actually, they're not material property. They they don't intervene in our world, so they don't have any presence in our world. So uh, this argument would go, aren't the Epicureans um, not atheists? Uh, they were called atheists in antiquity. That's absolutely evident. They were, if you ask most people in, in the ancient world, who are the, the atheists, they would have said the Epicureans. And in fact, the modern Hebrew word I gather for atheist is still apikoros, okay, which derives from Epicurus. So the Epicureans are called atheists in antiquity, 
but they do believe in a certain kind of divinity. And I should say it's actually more complicated than that because some Epicureans, like our friend Damis, don't believe in the existence of gods. It's a very fraught area. Epicurus never, in our extant material, never explains what he means by these gods, where they live. And there are philosophers, philosophers in this city who debate very strongly uh, about what Epicurus meant by this. For some people, uh, Epicurus meant nothing more than that there is an idea of perfect human uh, of perfect existence that we should aspire to it's not that the gods are real things they are ideals that we should aspire to so it's a very very complex idea of what the epicureans actually meant by gods and i don't want to get that into that in any detail the only point i'm making here is that when the ancients called the epicureans atheists one might say that's not the same thing as our modern idea of atheists. You don't hear Richard Dawkins saying, well, I kind of believe in gods, but they're not intervening in our world. Richard Dawkins says, there are no gods. And so that form of absolutist atheism um, was not the Epicurean position. Now, there are a few points rolled into one here, so let me pull them out one by one. First of all, this is really an extension of uh, the general point that we uh, deal with when we face cultures that are unlike our own. For a long time, people have worried about the appropriateness of various categories when analysing the Greeks and the Romans. So, for example, um, economy. Can you talk about an economy in a largely, I mean, in some faces, largely non-monetized culture without sort of exchange rates and so forth? Uh, Does that count as an economy? Is that the correct word to use? Sexuality, for example, they don't divide gay and straight in the way that we do. Um, and they don't think about sexuality as a property of the individual in quite the same way. Even categories like art, is art the appropriate term to use for a culture that usually sees images in religious terms as, as, as um, dedication, certainly statues? So all of these terms carry with them false implications. Okay, so we can't just use a term like economy, art, sexuality, or I would argue atheism, for the ancient world without thinking very hard about what these categories mean. As I say, this is the same with atheism. It makes no sense in my mind to deny that atheism existed in the ancient world because the ancients themselves say we have atheists amongst us. And the ancients did know that sort of Dawkins form of of what we call extreme atheism, if you like, that, you know, the idea that there are no gods at all in the world. That is a legitimate position to adopt in antiquity. Um, But the term has a larger capacity. It covers people who believe in the existence of kind of forms of deity that don't have anything to do with our world. So we have to be flexible with our categories. We have to understand the limitations of our modern categories and we have to think about how to mould them to and how to nuance them and and to think about their weaknesses and their limitations in describing antiquity. Um, now, uh, let me just, as I move towards conclusion, let me just check the time. Yeah. Um, let me just point to two very uh, brief forms of response, uh, two more forms of response I've had uh, from atheists and Christians. Now, I set the book up as a challenge to both camps, to both to the atheists and the believers, particularly because I see in a lot of um, new atheism, if you like, Uh, a certain sort of scientific arrogance, a belief that atheism is the result of 
a sort of progress away from primitive mentalities. Again, Dawkins says this um, uh, relatively commonly. So he says that, um, that uh, religious texts are the products of primitive peoples, and we don't need to understand the world in those terms anymore. So we just need to get with scientific modernity. Um, now, some atheists have grumbled that I haven't been respectful enough to people like the late Christopher Hitchens, who called himself an Epicurean, particularly in his, his dying days, um, that uh, what I've been doing here is um, creating a straw man that people have uh, kind of always um, recognised that atheism has forms of longevity and it's not just a product of modernity. But I would say two things in response to this. Firstly, like it or not, much of the atheist debate does remain coupled in with an implicit sense of intellectual superiority of the modern West. Anyone who's uh, engaged in Twitter discussions about these things have, will have seen this sort of thing in operation. The only way in which we can understand uh, atheism and atheism as part of a larger facet of human existence, I think, is to understand how it operates cross-culturally and get away entirely from this idea that it's only in hyper-civilised, hyper-intellectualised contexts that you can get atheism. I really do think this. I do think that atheism is, is atheism in this extended, looser sense that I've been discussing, a uh, broadly sceptical approach to the divine, really is a widespread feature of humanity. And I think to move forward in these debates, these ding-dongs between atheists and the religious and so forth, we do need to have a more wider, richer understanding of what atheism actually is. Uh, secondly, if atheism stands for anything at all, I think it stands for a re robust intellectual debate. And I'm sure that, uh, I haven't spoken to Richard Dawkins about this, um, but I'm sure that he and um, uh, Christopher Hitchens, where he's still alive, would be perfectly happy to have this kind of debate. It's not an affront to these people. They like uh, um, arguments being opened up and extended and so forth. And in fact, probably would be horrified if they thought that their writings were being treated as um, sacred scripture to be followed by atheists. Now, perhaps surprisingly, the Christian reaction, on the other hand, hasn't been particularly hostile, at least not to my face. Um, I have done the BBC's Big Questions a couple of times, and um, it's actually, um, it's always been very friendly. It's, I mean, have you seen this programme, the uh, Sunday Morning Religious Debate programme? It's a very strange programme. It basically involves people shouting at each other and talking across each other in a very animated way and getting very heated. Um, but maybe because I'm not a particularly confrontational person, I didn't get any um, sense of great hostility there. In fact, one uh, interlocutor who was Catholic um, told me afterwards that he was very happy with my position that atheism is a feature of of human nature, because he says humans are fallen beings, and this proves that error is part of humanity generally. <laughs> uh, an American evangelical magazine called The World took a similar line, although it's quite hard to follow the argument at this point. Uh, it said that my book is helpful for a Christian apologetic in that it showed that atheism is old-fashioned cranky arrogance. It's always fought against God-centered trust and always will until Christ returns. That's the last line of the review. That's the first review I've ever had. I mean, being a fairly sheltered academic, I don't usually get reviews that finish with prophecies of the return of the Messiah <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, only the tablet has taken my book as an anti-Christian polemic, picking up on the point that I make towards the end of the book, that it was the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity that saw the death, really, of ancient atheism, that, uh, that saw the end of this very vibrant discussion about whether uh, gods could 
um, the, whether you could disprove the existence of gods in antiquity. And I do think that's true, actually. I do think that with Christianity, you do see a marked shift in the discourse. Of course, all sorts of questioning comes in with Christianity. It's not that Christianity closes down debate, but Christianity makes it so that all forms of questioning have to be channeled through a broadly theological uh, funnel. Now, I'm not actually at that point in the book, attacking Christianity itself so much as the idea of an imperial state adopting one particular worldview and imposing that on uh, um, uh, other people. I'm perfectly sure that if the Romans had forced everyone to become Epicureans, that would have been no better because when a state imposes a single monolithic view of of the world, then it becomes a very oppressive uh, world indeed. So I want to finish now by letting my academic guard down a little bit and speaking more in more utopian terms about what we can learn from ancient history, and in particular what we can learn from reflecting on the history of atheism. Now, I would say, of course, that there is a lot to consider repellent about the ancient world in general, the classical world I'm talking about here. Slavery, obviously, the treatment of women, the routinization of warfare, and so forth. But what I do marvel at is a society where religion has very little sense of outside edge of the excluded other. And what I mean by this is that there were very few people in the classical world who were told that their religion is wrong. Uh, This was because they knew that there were many gods in the world. There was always room for another god on Mount Olympus. If you have many gods already, uh, there is an infinitely... I mean, polytheism isn't denied by adding another god to the category. category. Uh, Jan Asman, the German Egyptologist, who I greatly admire, saw this sense of the translatability of gods from one cultural system, the fact that you can borrow gods from one culture and move them into your own culture, um, as the explanation for the absence of religious warfare in antiquity. There was, of course, plenty of warfare, plenty of violence, um, even what you might call terrorism, um, mutatis mutandis, but it was never religious in texture. People didn't fight for their god uh, or against other gods. You can nuance that, um, but, but by and large, that, that is true. What's more, and this is the specific argument about atheism that I push in the book, the elasticity of ancient polytheism uh, coupled with this, the absence of sacred scripture and the absence of priests whose job is to enforce certain ways of seeing the world, meant that there was an incredibly broad spectrum of positions that you could take on the nature of the divine. And this is a crucial point, that broad spectrum included the possibility that the gods might not exist at all. This wasn't a position that was defined in opposition to religiosity. This was a position on the spectrum of legitimate views about the nature of the divine. Again, one would have to, a fuller account would have to be more nuanced about this because there are times in classical antiquity when atheism is prohibited and seen as very, very bad. But by and large, it is an extension of the normal ways in which people conceive of the gods because you don't have set, fixed ways of conceiving of the gods. You don't have sacred scripture which tells you what the gods are like. So you do have the built in elasticity that allows people to take multiple points. Uh, multiple points of view on the gods. Now, classical antiquity, as I say, doesn't offer an ideal to which we aspire, as people used to think in the 18th and 19th centuries, but it does offer us pointers towards different ways of organising our societies, our worlds, our minds, if you like. 
in our own times we're in different modes of religion and in this respect I would include atheism itself are becoming increasingly congealed into expressions of identity politics which is the curse of our age um, and hence increasingly weaponized people are digging into these positions and saying we have got nothing to do with you we in our group stand in opposition to your group in this context it's genuinely refreshing i think to immerse oneself in an era in which ideas about the gods and the cosmos were a fit subject for intense vigorous but by and large constructive debate now antiquity was i keep re-emphasizing this far from being without its problems but it does for us i think offer a valuable set of resources for thinking about how we might move on in our present embattled world thank you very much <laughs>